So my name is Mike Stover. I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable & Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Today I'm joined by my partner, George Backrack. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can call in. If you missed a presentation, you can listen to the recording on our website at www.wcslaw.com or as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals. We have issued, as of today, 253 pins, and almost 700 people have called in since we started the program in May 2016. I was looking at the reports earlier today, and we get, in a typical call, we get representatives from 19 or 20 different surety companies uh, on, a different, on any given day when, when we hold this. It's pretty amazing. But we appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues you think might be interested in calling in. We're always happy to have uh, new folks join. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. If you have any technical issues, contact Jeannie. She's uh, at jhyattwcslaw.com. As always, we'll mute the line during the presentation to avoid uh, background noise, and then we'll unmute at the end in case there's any questions. So this is the first in a series of surety bankruptcy-related presentations that George and I will give over the next several months. Our surety law group has extensive experience in the bankruptcy arena. We have written numerous papers and articles and book, ch book chapters on bankruptcy topics. We've spoken at every major conference on bankruptcy issues. We've represented sureties in bankruptcy courts all over the country, for example, we're currently representing sureties in bankruptcy matters pending in Richmond, Virginia. I've got two there, Baltimore, Montana. Uh, we're currently uh, surety bankruptcy counsel for an international retailer in bankruptcy with over 100 bonds at issue and millions of dollars of collateral at stake. We have represented sureties in large national construction contractor bankruptcies as well as smaller contractors and indemnitors in bankruptcy. Uh, one of our partners is a former bankruptcy trustee. And over the decades, I think we've probably dealt with just about every issue in the bankruptcy context. We've addressed over the, uh, the course of the Surety Today programs, we've addressed bankruptcy issues on uh, several occasions. I'll refer back uh, September 2016, Jason and I discussed uh, recent developments in bankruptcy discharge issues. In November 2016, Lou Kozlikowski and I discussed trust funds in bankruptcy. And uh, December 2016, George and I discussed letters of credit, and we touched on bankruptcy issues then. So we've, we've hit on bankruptcy sort of sporadically, and we thought that this would be a good time to kind of focus a little bit more in-depth over the next few months. So the goals of this series are to provide a general bankruptcy context, uh, concepts rather to the attendees, to provide the legal effect of those bankruptcy concepts on the surety and its rights and obligations, and then to provide practical approaches and solutions that a surety may consider when faced with its principal and or indemnitor bankruptcy cases. Today's presentation will focus on the automatic stay and property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. So I'm going to get us started uh, with a brief overview of the automatic stay, the, the who, what, where, when, and why, if you will, of the automatic stay. The automatic stay is set forth in the Bankruptcy Code at 11 U.S.C. Section 362. Once a petition for bankruptcy is filed in any chapter of the bankruptcy, whether it's 7, 11, or 13, the automatic stay comes into effect. 
as, it, as its name suggests, the stay arises automatically and is immediately, by operation of law, uh, in effect. There's no order of the court or issuance of a notice that's required to bring it into existence. So who does the, the automatic stay apply to? The automatic stay is applicable to all entities and persons. The words entity and person are defined in the code very broadly as any person, a state, trust, government, corporation, unincorporated company or association. Thus, courts, governmental agencies like the IRS or banks, and sadly, even surety companies are subject to the stay. There are several well-recognized purposes of the automatic stay. The first is to provide relief to the debtor from the pressure and harassment of creditors and to give the debtor a breathing spell to focus on rehabilitation or reorganization. The stay also protects property that may be necessary for reorganizing and providing a fresh start. The stay is intended to promote one of the primary goals of the bankruptcy process, which is equality of distribution. It preserves the status quo and prevents the disorganized dismemberment of the debtor by creditors chaotically running all over the country to various courthouses to obtain independent relief to the detriment of other creditors and the debtor. So what does the automatic stay apply to? To accomplish the purposes of the bankruptcy process, the scope of the stay has intentionally been made very broad in the code. It applies to the commencement or continuation of any judicial proceeding or other action or proceeding against the debtor that was or could have been commenced prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. The enforcement of a judgment or lien against the debtor or against the property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate that arose prior to the filing of the debtor's bankruptcy case, including any act to obtain possession of or control of the debtor's property. It applies to any attempt to create perfect, or enforce any lien against the debtor's property, which includes filing of a UCC financing statement, for example. Uh, the stay also applies to any act to enforce a set-off right against the debt owed to the debtor that arose before the bankruptcy case was filed. Regarding the scope of the automatic stay, it has been observed that the stay is ex extremely broad and applies to almost any type of formal or informal action taken against the debtor or the property of the estate. Now, the automatic stay, once it arises, remains in force until the property subject to the stay is no longer property of the estate or the earliest of one of the following. One, the time the case is closed. Two, the time the case is dismissed. Or three, the time the case is discharged or a discharge is granted or denied, rather. The stay may also be list, lifted by the bankruptcy court, and I'll talk about that a little later. There are exceptions to the automatic stay. The code provides that the stay does not apply to criminal actions, paternity suits, domestic support, custody, divorce matters, domestic violence, certain police powers are exempted, and other limited matters. The stay also may not apply if the debtor has recently filed a bankruptcy case under certain circumstances. The automatic stay uh, does not generally apply to separate related entities uh, of the debtor who are not in bankruptcy, such as uh, directors, officers, affiliates, partners, etc. However, such entities could seek protection under uh, section 11 USC, section 105, under injunctive relief. 
Actions on claims that arose after the commencement of a case are not stayed. However, enforcement of any resulting judgment would typically be stayed. If the automatic stay is violated, such action is either void or voidable, depending on the nature of the violation. Further, under the code, in the event of a willful violation of the stay, an individual may recover actual damages, costs, attorney's fees, and in appropriate circumstances, punitive damages. Moreover, a violation of the stay can be punished under the bankruptcy court's contempt powers and, um, and the party can be sanctioned. The Fifth Circuit has held that standing to assert a claim for willful violation of the automatic stay is not limited to the debtor or the trustee and could be asserted by any creditors who have suffered damages because of a stay violation. So, George, I'll turn it over to you. One of the issues is uh, that is treated in the... Uh that's been treated in the automatic stay is the concept of property of the estate. And because the concept of property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate is so prevalent in the context of what can or can't be done that could result in a surety's violation of the automatic stay, we will address that issue and that concept now. The first question is, what is the definition of property of the bankruptcy estate in the code? Section 541 says, as of the filing of the bankruptcy case, the debtor's bankruptcy estate is comprised of all legal or equitable interests of the debtor in property as of the commencement of the bankruptcy case, wherever located and by whomever held. In determining the nature and extent of the debtor's interest in property and whether that property becomes property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate, the bankruptcy court must look, at, look to the property rights of the debtor as defined by applicable state law. The debtor's rights are determined as of the date of the commencement of the bankruptcy case. Section 541 does not vest or provide the debtor's bankruptcy estate with any greater rights than those rights held by the debtor in the property. To the extent that the legal or equitable interests in the debtor's property include included in the bankruptcy estate are limited in the debtor's hands, they are generally limited to the same extent in the hands of the, any debtor or any trustee who may be appointed uh, for the debtor. And the trustee acquires only the rights that the debtor has and nothing more. For example, property in which the debtor holds only legal title and not an equitable interest becomes property of the estate only to the extent of the debtor's legal title to such property, but not to the extent of any equitable interest in such property that the debtor does not hold. The takeaway here is that the debtor's bankruptcy estate gets no better interest in property after the debtor's filing the bankruptcy case than the debtor had prior to the filing of the bankruptcy case. From the surety's perspective, we ask the question again, what is property of the bankruptcy estate? Here are some examples. All, all real property of the principal in which the surety may have an interest, such as a mortgage or a deed of trust. All personal property that the principal debtor uh, may have uh, of the principal debtor in which the surety may have a lien interest, such as a security agreement and UCC1 financing statement, or the surety's possession of the property as collateral, such as cash. It encompasses all collateral of the principal debtor of any other kind held by the surety as a result of the execution of the indemnity agreement and the surety bonds, 
whether at the time of the execution of the surety bonds or later pursuant to a demand for collateral or police and funds demand under the indemnity agreement. And perhaps, and maybe probably, the bonded contract funds are property of the bankruptcy estate, and this is an issue that we'll discuss more in next month's Surety Today presentation. What may not be property of the debtor's estate? Letters of credit and letters of credit proceeds. The surety's performance and payment bonds are not property of the estate because the debtor has no claim or right to recovery under such bonds. However, there's a question of whether the debtor has property rights in the surety's commercial surety bonds that the debtor requires to maintain its business operations. Namely, without certain commercial surety bonds, the debtor cannot operate its business. And those include license bonds, deposit bonds, tax bonds, importer bonds with customs, and hundreds of other examples, all depending on the type of the debtor's business. It is clear under the law, however, that the surety may not cancel such bonds without obtaining relief from the automatic stay. The next issue is, um, what is the interplay between the two concepts? Um, the factual scenario is that the surety has executed bonds. The question is, when has the surety taken collateral? It may take collateral at the time of the execution of the bonds. It may take collateral after the execution of the bonds, prior to the filing of the bankruptcy estate. Um, or it may try to take collateral after the filing of the bankruptcy case. Um, in the first two instances, that collateral taken by the surety um, is subject to the automatic stay. The surety cannot exercise its rights on that collateral uh, to reimburse itself or to pay claims. With respect to the surety obtaining collateral after the bankruptcy, um, that is, is a subject for another day. Um, so what happens? Because of the automatic stay, the surety is stayed from exercising its rights under any collateral that it is holding that is deemed to be property of the estate, um, regardless of whether it's cash, real property, or personal property, uh, and the surety cannot obtain new collateral. In summary, the surety will maintain its lien rights in the property during the bankruptcy estate. It may be able to obtain adequate protection as a result of holding onto that property, such as insurance for the property, um, but it may not exercise its indemnity agreement rights to get, obtain reimbursement or payment of loss. <clears throat> okay, thanks, George. So, as George mentioned, uh, there's one form of collateral that the surety can hold that is not considered to be property of the bankruptcy estate, namely letters of credit. Because letters of credit are not property of the bankruptcy estate, it is generally held that the automatic stay does not apply. Now, why is a letter of credit not subject to the automatic stay? The reason is because the letter of credit is an agreement between the surety and the bank to which the debtor is technically not a party. The letter of credit is the product of essentially three transactions. The first transaction relates to the principal and the surety and the issuance of bonds. The second transaction relates to the principal and the bank and the request for the issuance of the letter of credit by, by the principal from the bank. The third transaction is the bank issuing the letter of credit to the surety with the surety as the beneficiary. The unique feature of a letter of credit that insulates it from being considered property of the estate is something referred to as the independence principle. The independence principle holds that each of the three transactions are deemed to be independent and separate from each other. 
The issuance of a letter of credit is held to be completely separate and independent from the underlying transaction between the principal and the surety. Thus, the bank that issues the letter of credit is pledging its own credit and its own assets to the surety, regardless of what transpires in the underlying transactions between the principal and the surety or between the bank and the principal. The bank is paying out of its own money, not the debtor's money. Because of the independence principle, the assets of the bankruptcy estate are deemed not to be involved. Thus, the automatic stay does not apply, and the surety is free to draw down a letter of credit, use the proceeds to reimburse itself, or pay claims without violating the automatic stay or seeking permission of the bankruptcy court. So George mentioned this also. What about surety bonds? Are they covered by the automatic stay? And as he noted, the answer is it depends. <laughs> Uh, there are many cases holding that a bond posted by a surety to secure the obligation of a debtor is not property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. As a result, because the bond is generally considered not to be property estate, the automatic stay does not apply in the surety uh, to the surety or the bond in general. Thus, even when a principal on a bond is in bankruptcy, the obligee or a claimant may assert a claim against the bond or maintain a cause of action against the surety under the bond, and the surety is free to make payments under the bond all without regard to the automatic stay. But surety bonds provide a good example of the complexity of the application of the automatic stay because while a bond is not property of the estate and claims may be made against and paid from the bond, cancellation of the bond or renewal of a bond can be covered by the automatic stay, particularly with respect to commercial bonds, as George noted. Many times, commercial bonds, such as license bonds, are required for the commercial principal to remain in business. In these circumstances, many courts will find that the automatic stay applies to cancellations or renewal. The courts reach this conclusion for a variety of reasons. In some cases, the courts observe that cancellation of bonds is not one of the recognized exceptions to the automatic stay in the code, in the code and that prohibiting cancellation furthers the broad purpose of the stay. One court noted that while the surety may have the right to cancel its bond, bringing these kinds of contracts within the ambit of the automatic stay ensures that the legal question of whether a particular contract may be terminated will be decided in the proper forum after a full briefing by the parties rather than by a non-debtor party acting unilaterally and perhaps erroneously. Other courts have held that the automatic stay applies because the act of canceling a bond constitutes a proceeding against the debtor, and such action is barred by the stay under the code. For example, in Ray Wegner Farms 49 Bankruptcy 440, the Bankruptcy Northern District of Iowa, 1985, the court addressing, uh, addressing a grain dealer license bond stated, pursuant to Iowa code, the surety could not legally cancel the bond without giving 60 days notice by certified mail to the Iowa State Commerce Commission and the debtor. Although the procedure was informal and not judicial in nature, it nonetheless was a proceeding by the surety to forfeit the debtor out of a valid extant contract. As such, the procedures initiated by the surety to terminate the debtor's interest in the contract was a proceeding against the debtor in contravention of Section 362A1 of the Code. The Wegner Farms Court also held that the debtor as the principal under the bond had a protected property interest in that bond. The court observed that the bonding agreement was a valid legal contract entered into by the surety and the principal, now the debtor, even though the payment obligation ran to the third parties doing business with the debtor as a grain dealer, the debtor's coverage under the bond was a contractual obligation bargained for by the debtor 
and for which it paid valuable consideration. So the court stated, it defies logic to say that the debtor, as named principal under the bond and payer of the premium for the coverage provided by the bond, had no legal or equitable interest in the bonding agreement. Quite to the contrary, the debtor had valid contractual rights in the bonding agreement on the date of filing. Contractual rights constitute intangible property, which is included within the definition of property of the estate. Consequently, the surety's unilateral termination of the agreement post-petition was an attempt to obtain possession of property of the estate in, contra in contravention of the Section 362A3. As the treatment of letters of credit and bonds demonstrates, if the action will have an impact on the debtor or the property of the estate, the automatic stay will likely apply. George. We're going to touch briefly on the bond and contract funds because they are definitely property. The question is whether they are property of the debtor's estate. There are arguments that the bond and contract funds are not property of the debtor's estate because the debtor may be in default under the bond and contract, whether it's in performance or payment of its substance suppliers. And the argument is that the bond and contract funds have not been earned by the debtor and therefore not property of the debtor's estate. The bond and contract may also have been effectively terminated uh, and the debtor has no rights to payment. But there are also arguments that the bond and contract funds are proper of the state because the debtor may still be performing work and may cure any defaults that then make it entitled to the payment of the bond and contract funds in the future. Furthermore, a portion of bond and contract funds may be for the debtor's own performance of the work and overhead and general administrative expenses and not just the payment of the debtor's substance suppliers. While the, trust, while the surety may have interest in the bond and contract funds of various kinds, trust fund interest, security interest, subrogation rights, um, the fact is, is that that doesn't necessarily answer the question of whether the bond and contract funds are proper of the estate. The effect of the filing of the debtor's bankruptcy case on the respective rights of the debtor and the surety to the bond and contract funds will be addressed next month in our December 11 Surety Today presentation. We only mention the issues here uh, because of the fact that they may be deemed proper of the estate, and if they are proper of the estate, the automatic stay may apply. Okay, thanks, George. So if the automatic stay does apply, or if you're not sure if the stay applies or not, but you're concerned about violating the stay, what can you do? The code at Section 362D provides the means and ability to obtain relief from the automatic stay. The code provides that on request of a party in interest, and after notice in a hearing, the court shall grant relief from the stay, such as by terminating, annulling, modifying, or conditioning the stay. Under Section 362D1, the stay may be lifted or modified for cause, including lack of adequate protection of an interest in property of a party. Under Section 362D2, the stay may be lifted or modified with respect to an act against property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. Uh, if two conditions, if the debtor does not have any equity in such property and such property is not necessary to an effective reorganization. So the surety may move for relief from the stay to take control of a bonded project, for example, pursuant to its assignment rights or indemnity rights or statutory rights or subrogation rights. And under Section D1, the surety's primary argument is often that the principal is financially unable to complete the bonded projects. Most bankruptcies occur because the debtor has run out of cash, and without sufficient cash, the debtor will not be able to pay for labor, supplies, and materials. 
Many times projects have been front-loaded so that the cost to complete the project is greater than the remaining contract funds. Further, there could be delay costs or liquidated damages, all of which would, would make the completion uh, bill that much greater. So the principal cannot provide adequate protection because it is not able to, to competently and timely complete the bonded project. Under Section D2, the surety can get relief from the stay if it can establish that its losses will exceed the remaining contract funds such that the debtor has no equity in the contract funds. For purposes of establishing lack of equity, all the obligations of the debtor can be combined to determine the debtor's equity position. So if there's a bank out there that might have an interest, you can add all those together with the surety's um, position as well to establish that there's no equity. It's important to note that the burden will be on the surety to establish entitlement to relief from the stay. In several of my recent bankruptcy cases, we were able to convince the trustee that the debtor had no equity in the open projects, and we filed we were able to agree and file a stipulation allowing the debtor to be terminated from the project and the surety to use the contract funds to complete the project. So a lot of times you'll find that the trustees are pretty realistic about this because they don't want to spend a lot of, mo of their own money and time, you know, trying to pursue um, assets that uh, aren't really going to pan out for them in the end. And uh, you'll, you can often find that they'll be uh, amenable to working out deals. Okay. The last issue that I want to treat is the automatic stay in claims against surety bonds. Um, the question being whether the claims of obligees of third-party claimants uh, against surety bonds can be stayed or are they stayed. Uh, you need to remember that the principal debt and the surety are jointly and severally liable under the surety bonds. The result is that any action against the debtor is stayed but since the surety is severally liable under the surety bond, any action that the against the surety alone is not stayed. Therefore, an obligee or third-party claimant cannot sue a principal debtor under the, under the bond, but it can sue the surety, and the automatic stay is not in effect against the surety. However, the debtor may attempt to stay actions or claims against the surety bond the debtor may contend that it's too busy, especially early on in the bankruptcy case, and is unable to assist the surety in the defense of the claims. The surety may want to hide behind that uh, and join with the debtor to stay actions, at least for a period of time. However, many sureties don't want to have the automatic stay or any stay applied to claims against the surety bonds because of the surety's good faith duty to honor its surety bond obligations. There are cases that go both ways on this stay issue um, and whether the court, either under the 362 automatic stay or its general powers to control the bankruptcy case, can stay actions against the surety bonds. Um, but when they do issue such a stay, it's under unique and rare circumstances. Two other issues, the surety many times tries to settle and pay surety bond claims on its own. The indemnity agreement normally provides that a surety may settle any claims in good faith against the bonds. The surety is not prevented by the automatic stay from settling bond claims. The debtor's defense to any such settlement is to object to the surety's proof of claim for the losses that the surety has paid, and it challenges the surety's claim either under both the propriety of the surety's payment or the amount of the surety's payment. When the surety is holding collateral and attempts to make a payment in good faith, it may want to talk to debtor's counsel first because there could be subsequent objections if the surety attempts to reimburse itself. Um, 
Finally, the surety settling of the principal debtor's affirmative claims. This is for money that the principal debtor thinks that it is owed. Normally, a surety is interested in settling the principal's affirmative claims against the obligee when the obligee's performance bond claim against the surety is greater than the principal's affirmative claims. And the surety would like to reduce its obligations by settling off uh, both claims at once. The indemnity agreement, assignment, and power of attorney provisions are normally the basis for the surety's right to settle the principal's affirmative claims. Bankruptcy courts have recognized the surety's rights to settle the principal's affirmative claims. Okay, thanks, George. So in closing, before we open up the line for the Q&A period, I wanted to let everyone know the next edition of Surety Today will be Monday, December 11th, 1230. George and I, as I mentioned, will be continuing the series in bankruptcy. We're going to talk about the debtors and the surety's rights to the bonded contract funds. Uh, events in the surety industry, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Lunch will be Wednesday, the 15th. The Atlanta Surety Claims Lunch will be November 17th. And the Chicago Surety Claim Association's next event is their holiday party on December 7th, complete with surety trivia. That's always fun. All right, so I've opened up the lines for any questions. Anybody? All right. Well, we appreciate everybody calling in and hope to talk to you next month. Take care. Thank you, Mike, George. Thank you. Thank you.